I'm Peter Jones, and welcome to The Foyne Jones Show. This podcast will be combining personality, passion, and our love of football, alongside industry and recruitment news. Our amazing guests will share their personal stories and also explain what they get up to when they're not at work. So we're here today for the next episode of the Foyne Jones Show. We are recording at Foyne Jones Towers. Mike Wagstaff, thanks for joining me today. Nice one, cheers mate. Mike, really, really great to have you here and, and really powerful for me to show how far this podcast has come because this is episode 13 and Mike, you got in touch with me a week or so ago to say, look, you know, you've got a story to tell and from my perspective, anyone who knows me will know it's a story that I'm going to be quite passionate about. We're going to be talking about your career in construction supplies and what you're doing right now in the industry. But we're going to go back in time and we're going to talk about what you did before civilian life because you're ex-military, aren't you? Yeah, correct. We're going to talk about that transition, get to know you away from work and unbelievably, and my viewers and my listeners won't believe this, you're a Chelsea fan and, I, and, you, and you've made it into the studio. Yeah, correct. So yeah. so, so a very Fulham-orientated podcast and a very sport-orientated podcast. The, uh, the penalty shootout's definitely going to be fun. But Mike, you've got, you've got lots to talk about and we'll break that down to really... Your background, where it began, what led you to the armed forces and who you served with and, and what you did, adjusting into civilian life and then where we are right now. So take a few minutes, sir, it's all about you, just to talk to the listeners, my connections on social media, about who you are and, and what brings you, why are you sitting here, mate? So I'm Mike Wagstaff, I'm a technical sales manager um, in the construction industry for a company called Evanox. We make heat interface units, really interesting stuff, and utility cupboards. Um, we also specialise in district heating schemes and the billing side of things. Um, construction was a good fit for me coming from the army. Um, there's a lot of parallels there with professionalism, working the long hours, and striving to all come together with a different plan. Fantastic, and and in your current role, Mike, just just you know, you mentioned the you mentioned the, the all the exciting stuff there. But what does your role encompass now? So, what what does the average working day, working week, working month look like for you? Every day is different. I think that's probably why I love the job so much. Because some days I might be talking with them and consultants about building services design. The next day I could be talking with a main contractor about where we fit in on the prefabricated side of the business. The following day, I could be talking with an end user about how better to manage the the district heating scheme on their project. Fair play, fair play. So, so diverse customer base and uh, and a technical product as well in in terms of the the application and the route to market. That I guess lends itself to a certain personality. But but you arrive into the construction arena from a very different pathway to, to many of the guests we've yeah, had before sure. and, and many of the people I work with. And, you know, that could be whether they're, um, you know, a hiring manager of a global PLC or whether they're a privately owned business. Everyone's got their own story. But the the working the working life for you begun, begun very differently. But let's go back a little bit forward. So, so what part of the world are you from, Mike? And, you know, just bring yourself to life a little bit. So, originally... Born and bred in Enfield in North London. I know Enfield very well, mate. My mum yeah. lives in Cheshunt. Yeah, Chase Farm Hospital for my sins. Um, when I was about seven, eight years old, I moved up to Scotland. Um, my dad was Scottish, um, lorry driver. My mum was an East Londoner. And That's a right wing double, mate, isn't it? I know, I know, I know. So we so we settled up there. The, the reason we moved up there is that my dad lost his business, his, his trucking firm in the 
in the big recession in the 80s. So it was a it was a point that we had to consolidate and move up to Scotland. Um, it was a difficult move, as you can imagine, being English and Catholic in a Scottish Protestant school in a very tight knit community. Um, yeah, I was really popular as a kid growing you, you was, up. You were as popular as that, as that wee lad in Derry Girls, weren't you? You know, I know, I mean, again, you know, there's other, other sitcoms are available, but that's, that's, that, that programme cracks me up for, for a couple of reasons. It cracks me up, one, because there's probably a character just like you, yeah. um, albeit I, I doubt you was in an all-girls school. But I my, often um, thought about being in an all-girls school. My wife's family are from Northern Ireland, right? So when we used to go out there when the kids were young and stuff, our grandparents were on a beautiful farm outside Straban, but they were the other side round. They were the other way round, so they were one than a few Protestant families in a quite staunch Catholic area, yeah. uh, and I found everyone wonderful and, and just a beautiful country. But but you can see that I was there on a visit. You know, I wasn't there for for the school yeah. days, so that would have been a challenge for you, mate. It was, yeah. I mean, it was, I think it was a challenge not only just at school, but it was probably a challenge for my family. You know, my mum was my mum was English and Catholic, and my dad was Scottish and Protestant. And and you know, one of the things that my dad always taught me growing up was that it it really doesn't matter who you are or where yeah. you come from. You know we're all exactly the same it's down to us as human beings to prove our worth to everybody else but trying to fit in at school and you know it was it was a nightmare bullying massively took a hold for me um towards the back end of primary school and you know the kids would gang up on me and one-on-one was never an issue two-on-two wasn't really an issue but then you got to secondary school and it was you know it was a 40-minute bus journey because of where we lived to get to secondary school and you know, you'd get a kicking on the bus there, you'd get a kicking at school, you'd get a kicking on the bus home. And it was tough, but always at the back of it, I knew that, you know, I had my my key area, my home, yeah. you know, my parents and, and that life. And I was fortunate that, you know, my dad was an outdoors type of guy. So we spent so much time fly fishing, hill walking, that kind of thing. Kids are tough, mate. You know, the kids and school is tough. You know, I, I went to a, uh, a, a pretty lively central well west london fulham comprehensive school you know it's a church school by name but that was about it you know it was a it was a it was a rough old environment and i actually joined there it's probably the worst time you could ever want to join a secondary school i joined just after christmas at the second year so i think in modern modern money that's year eight so year seven, all, your, all your, your, your levels are built and, you know, he's a top man, he's not, and you're in the football team, you're not. I arrived halfway through the second year. So that was a real challenge because before that, I did I did a year at a very different secondary school in Hertfordshire, in Chesham, funny enough, so, so right. near Enfield. So so the environment was different. The, 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 I was going back to where I was from, but I found that really hard to adjust and it took me, I reckon, about 18 to 24 months to really adjust to to coming back into that environment. Yeah. And even though the people, a lot of people in the school were friends, it, it didn't matter because there was that hierarchy and it was all going on. And, and I look back to some of the things that were going on when I was at school. I'm not that old. You know, it's not, it's not that long ago. And you'd think, like, there's no way that c- the teachers could get away with that. The other kids could be getting away with that. There's, yeah, yeah. there's no way yeah. in today's world of political correctness that you could get away with it. But that school was it at school you got that that call in to, to the to the because we're going to talk about the armed forces we're going to talk about where you served i mean you know what? where did that happen and how did that happen it's there was i had quite a proud tradition of people within my family that had been in the army so my granddad um was at the liberation of belson camp he got two military medals for his actions um my uncle huey was a power in burma he was a prisoner of war for a while escaped three times every time they escaped they and they they caught hold of him they did something else horrible to him um my uncle murray was in the paras as well um 
my dad tried to get into the Royal Marines. He passed a selection course, and his mum and dad found out that he'd gone, and they were like, no, get home now, otherwise you're yeah. in, in big trouble kind of routine. Um, so the army for me was always something that, you know, that I'd wanted to do. My uncle well, was, it a genuine, was it a genuine calling though? Because I remember, you know, at school when the careers people come round and the the different services were always there and it was always part of it. And there was a couple of lads. One of my closest friends actually he always wanted to be in the navy and he was a sea cadet and whatever. Yeah. And it was always what he wanted to do. And he kept fading the medical. And it was only a few years later when they slightly lapsed because he got run over. He generally got run over crossing Fulham mm. Road. He'd done his knees and he had to be rebuilt and he couldn't pass the medical. Eventually, he did and he got in and he's now a very, very successful nuclear submariner. That's what he wanted to do. Yeah. But I remember there wasn't an amazing buzz around the, the army careers or the, the military forces careers when they came in. So, do you know what? I think that... I think bullying really started it for me because I developed quite a quite a knack of being good at running. You know, yeah. whether it be fifteen hundred meters, cross country, five k, ten k, whatever it was, that was a way for me to escape. Yeah. And you know, when my uncles and my granddad and my dad and that spent time, you know, like, have you ever thought about joining the army? You know, because it doesn't matter who you are in the army; it's a team. You don't need to. You don't need to fit in because you're all highly trained professionals. So yeah. it's a new family. It's you know there's no discrimination. It's it's more about you as a person. You know fitting in and making sure that your skill set fits that team. And at the time you had the you know you had the Frank adverts on the TV and stuff like that. And it was just it was something to aspire to. You know I wanted to be that bloke water skiing on a beach near the yeah. Bahamas. Little did I realise it was going to be full of you know really nice cold jaunts to like Bosnia and Kosovo and places like that so it wasn't kind of how it was sold to me but I'm, I'm so glad I did because yeah. without without that I wouldn't be sat here now well we're going to come on to your time in the you're going to come, come come on to your time in the forces so and that's a real you've got a really powerful message you want to talk about some of the things you experienced and and we've spoke before and that transition into Civvy Street as it's called but back into civilian life and the differences I think when we talk about that, it's gonna it's gonna reach out to so many people that are in similar situations. So, Mike, we're moving on to what for me is is probably the most powerful part of today's podcast because we're going to talk about an individual who's made themselves very, very, very successful in construction, you know, in the professional side of construction, but your working life began, you know, serving your queen, serving your country and making the world a better place for, for me and my family. Um, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how long you spent in the armed forces, who that was with, what your experiences were, and then how that affected you to the point you are now. So where did it begin, Mike, for you? It began when I was a little over 15 and a half years old. Wow. Uh, yep, ATR Basingbourne, Royston. Um, that was where that was where basic training started, and it it ended a little under eight years later. Um, I spent that time in the Royal Engineers, and we went all over the place from Bosnia, Kosovo, Cyprus with the UN. We were here, there, and everywhere. You know, the downtime in between tours was short, yeah. and when you weren't on downtime you were training for the next tour um it 
it's a weird position to be in because as a young lad, you leave one family. So I leave my mum and my dad, my two best friends, mm. and I suddenly find myself immersed into this completely new culture. And within four or five months, you suddenly realise that all that stuff that went on before, that's gone. Mm. And this is now. And you've got this whole new family and you've got these people that suddenly are so different, so different, nobody's the same. And all of a sudden, it doesn't matter where you were before. All it matters is the here and now, who you are, knowing that once this training's done, you're off to a unit, and you know that your oppo beside you's got your back. Yeah. You know that he's giving, or she, I might add, he's giving 100% every single day. My, myself as a person, my business, my family, you know, we are, we are public passionate supporters of, of all the armed forces, you know, of yeah. all the different divisions, different regiments. And, you know, I've done some amazing fundraising for people to, to try and support that and just just actually recognise the, the, the difference you make to the world and to the country. But what what took you to the engineer the Royal Engineers? What took me to the Royal Engineers was that my parents being my parents said that listen, we don't mind you joining the army, but at some point that's gonna to come to an end. Um, we want to make sure you get something out of it that you can then transition into civvy life with. So we want you to get a trade. Yeah. Royal Engineers is the best fit. Um, if you then want to go off and do P Company and join 9 Para, you can do. If you want to go and do Commando, go 5-9, you can do. Didn't do either, but you know mm. it's there. Um, and you can get your driving licenses out of it. It's important. You know They're all costly things nowadays. Yeah. Um, I went and did my chippy course, Carpenter and Joiner course, and I've probably used that probably twice in the last month yeah. um, and probably four times in the last 10 years. I'm the world's worst chippy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, mate. You haven't seen me with a, with a well-known Swedish company's flat packs, mate. Um, Mrs. Jones, she keeps getting that. She just takes over. She actually ushers me out of the way, you know, so, uh, and that's not even chippy and that's more like you know, Janet yeah. and John following the instructions. So so the engineers, so, so, so you join in there, at, you know, um, well, it's a little bit older than Adrian Mole, 15 and three quarters, not yeah, showing me age much. now, see, 13 yeah. and three quarters, wasn't it? Um, but so you join, you're joining in as a boy. You yeah. know, you are joining there as a as a teenager, as a boy. And I'd imagine you you leave there as a fully grown, wide-eyed man in terms of what you experience. Yeah. Um, you mentioned some tours and you mentioned places that we all hear on the news, you know, Bosnia, mm. Kosovo, the, the UN work in Cyprus. Um is that what it looks like from the outside looking in, or you know, is it a different? Is it different when you're there and you're with your your mates and you're part of it? Do you do you see everything we would imagine you see? Because because we and I don't mean this to to pride, but it looks horrific and terrifying at times. Mm. But I imagine that's not all the time. It's it's not all the time, no. And to be fair, you know, some of these tours were weren't that bad. But there were moments within those tours which made them truly horrific. Yeah. You know, things that, you know, don't make for good bedtime reading. Yeah. But it's it's the boys and girls that you serve with beside you that make it acceptable to see it. Because yeah. they, they're the ones with the arm around the shoulder. They're the ones that are buying you a pint and saying, I got your back. Yeah. I guess that's a different level. I mean, you mentioned friendships for life and, and that comes through it. Um, but in that, in that, in that journey and sort of when you come to the end of the journey, I imagine that that's equally daunting to, to, to know your part in company with something that has been your life and you've got to then find something completely different as well and, and, and readjust 
and re-acclimatise. It's, it's truly frightening. Um, you know, my... I, I briefly mentioned to you before, but I had two heroes when I was growing up. My dad and Daley Thompson. Yeah. Um, when I was 21 and in Bosnia, my dad died when I was out there. Right, okay. Um, and that was that was a tough thing to deal with. You know, I'd everything a father and son could do, I'd done a hundred times over, mm. you know, and to find out at an airport, um, Amsterdam airport with four and a half hours in between flights, that kind of started me on the rocky road to, to nowhere. Yeah. You know, before you know where you are, you've drunk a, you've drunk a litre bottle of teachers that you were supposed to be taking home for your parents and it's not even touched the sides. And you then find yourself skipping forward two and a bit years later and your mum is saying to you, listen, there's no place for you. You can't come home to Scotland. There's nothing here for you. There is literally nothing. Do not come home. I won't let you come. So you find yourself stood there outside your regiment with a cardboard box, a hold all, two carrier bags and 350 quid in your bank account. And you're thinking, wow, yeah. wh where's it got to? And, you you know, given, and you've given you've given eight eight long years of your life to to something, and you and you're looking to to move into something else, and you know, and I and I'm from the outside really looking in, so I'm not from a position of any knowledge, but I would imagine that's a situation faced by so many other veterans, so many other people leaving that, and you know, leaving because their 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 service is finished, leaving because of injury, leaving mm. for for whatever the reason is. That period of readjustment and reflection, and then trying to, to, to exist just in you know life as it's perceived normal, but what is normal life? You know, if you look at it, but but that that must be so challenging, mentally, physically, and, and just draining on you as a human being because you you the one person you want to reach out to is your is your mum because you you know you, there's there's a warmth there. For whatever reason, that's 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 not going to happen. So so what did you do? Because that's that's something that I'd imagine. Not many people listening to this podcast would have faced, but in saying that, there could be lots of, you know, ex-forces yeah. people that have faced that. So, how do you even try and deal with that, and what effect does it have on you? It's it's really tough to deal with because the army cocoons you in this as a single soldier within the army. It cocoons you in a in a wrap of everything's pretty much done for you. You know, you pay for your accommodation, you pay for your food. You've not really got anything else to worry about. The money that's left at the end of that is yours to do with as you see fit. And then all of a sudden you get out into city life and you've got you've got to find somewhere to live. You've got to pay council tax. Council tax. What is council tax? Where do I find 120 quid a month for that? Oh well, if you ring someone, you can get a discount. Nobody tells you that. Mm -hmm. You know, you've then got to set up a proper bank account. You know, all of these things that that nobody nobody even tells you. You know, silly little things like when you become employed in a civilian company, naked bar is now not a thing. You can't do that. A company does. <laughs> You know that sort of stuff tends. To I reckon there's fired. a few, I reckon there's a few places that still <laughs> that still roll it out, mate. But I mean, look, you're saying that you're saying that with a smile on your face, but you know that's that's easy, I guess, to look back and and to to realise there. But it must have been also a very dark place, and you you've been open with me about that yeah. dark place. It's it, it's it's a testament to yourself and your character that you are where you are now with your career and your family, but. Can we talk about how you got to where you are now? Because I know you, yeah. you, you said there were some big challenges, but some real successes, success stories as well. So I think let, let's, let's talk about them. I think the, the biggest challenge for me was having no, no real support network, no family. You know, I was having to work three jobs just to earn minimum wage so that I could 
you know, be able to afford rent on a place to live. And, you know, I was struggling. And the only way for me to cope was to drink more alcohol. And I found myself in a place where I didn't really understand what help was, who to ask or where to go. Yeah. But I knew that I was sick of feeling the way I felt. But to me, the way my brain processed it, I wasn't actually feeling anything. So I'd get really, really drunk and I'd go out and I needed to feel something in, and in my stupidity. I'd go out and I'd pick fights with people. Mm. You know, I'd pick fights with bouncers. And I knew that I was going to get a good hiding, but I didn't really care. I just needed to feel, I needed to feel something, something worth living for. I was kind of like in a, in the ether. It wasn't really me. I was looking at myself like an out-of-body experience. Mm. It was every day was a struggle. And every day it got worse. So it's almost like you're functioning through all of that. Somehow you're functioning. Somehow it's these, it, it's whether it's the alcohol, whether it's the, the confrontation, whether it's just putting yourself in these situations where things happen. Hmm. It's enabling you to keep functioning. That's that's awful. You know, g- genuinely when you hear that. But but more more poignant for me is when you say, you know, where do I go? How do I get that help? What do I do? Who can I talk to? Because there, you know, as a as a country, as a as businesses, as just general human beings, that there, there needs to be a duty of care to support people that are in this situation. Because because mm. no one can see beyond that that face value. So you know, if if someone is drinking or turning to addiction, what what's the triggers? You know, because because you you start somewhere, and and I'd imagine that when that's probably been broken down for you at some point, it it will be relating to you know the loss of a parent the 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 what you say the word scars but the the mental pressures of of armed forces and and Hmm. combat and and that is really hard to 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 kind of for me to to put into a place where i've not experienced it but but it does kind of emphasize how important it is to put a message out there that there are places you can go and, and there are steps you take so what was there was there clear markers that helped you turn I wouldn't say turn the situation around so I'm not saying it's a situation you turn around but what, what were, there, were there specific things that happened in, in your life on that journey that made you take the steps you have positively because you've made amazingly positive steps yeah I'd at the time the people that loved and cared about me in my life um, predominantly my mum really said you you need to have a good long hard look at yourself because I would I'd wake up and I'd look in the mirror and I said to Harry earlier on I didn't really know who that person was that was staring back at me. More importantly, the person that was staring back at me, I despised. Mm. I've never felt such anger and resentment in my life for me being there. And I had no way to deal with it. And there was no outlet. There were there were no signposts. There was mm. no pamphlet. You know, the, the resettlement training that I got from the army was for want of a better phrase, about as much use as a chocolate teapot. Mm. You know, it's much, much better now and that support network yeah. is better. But nobody told me who I had to go and where I had to see and I, I had to get counselling. Yeah. Quite plain and simple and it it was the most embarrassing thing that I've ever done in my life. But five minutes after making that phone call and I'd made that appointment, I instantly felt better because probably, I knew that I was uh, It's probably start. the most, most important and amazing thing you could have done for yourself is to actually find someone 
that, that could give you help. They actually admit to you. I mean, when you're saying there, and you know, you're looking in my eyes when you're saying it, when you're saying that you were looking at yourself in the mirror and you didn't not like the person that was staring back, you despised the person that was staring back, I don't know where you go from that. You know, and I, and I hear so many stories of where you could go, and a lot of the fundraising I've done has been to prevent people going to a really dark place where they take that situation where it is irretrievable. Mm. You've done something powerful, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a positive message we can send out, is that if you start looking for help and you find help, um, I doubt it. I doubt it makes everything better completely, but it gives you a pathway to it, to rebuild. Does it? it? It does, yeah. And I think one of the things that that came out of counselling was that I'm quite an emotive person. I'm a hugger. Yeah. You know, I'm a touchy feely kind of bloke, and we can hug anytime you want, Mike. It's all right. <laughs> and it's um, it it's about owning that, owning yeah. who you are, and and not being afraid to to talk about your feelings because we're blokes we're genetically pre-programmed to not want to talk about our feelings yeah. because we're there to we're there to nurture and protect not to have feelings and you know and, 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 and all blokes are like that but you're you're, you're ex-engineers so, so you're, you're you know you're ex the front line not, mm. you know you know what I'm so, so you've almost got that this isn't what we do anyway yeah. you know to, to, to the normal bloke in the street you know you are the alpha male you are or you, you, you pretend to be but you're there actually going above and beyond what normality is for, for the majority of the population. So it must be even harder to, to kind of break that into compartments and say, look, I need some help here. I need, to, I need to understand what I am as a person, who I can be as a person. Yeah, I think my, my biggest issue was that I would, I would compartmentalise everything. There wasn't an aspect of my life that wasn't locked so you away in a too, little box. So it was too, it was too could, put away. And when I when I struggled to deal with my emotions and my feelings, it's because I couldn't find the key to that box. Yeah. And I needed, it was only through counselling and through my family taking the time and energy to say to me, how are you feeling? Yeah. And the counselling you got, was, was, it through, was it for a charity? Was it for an nope. independent uh, no. person? Where, how did that all happen? I went to, um, I actually went and I approached the armed forces for yeah. help and they turned me away and said, you haven't got a problem, you're just struggling with civilian life which was really disappointing. And I'd love to say that that's changed now, but it hasn't. One of my best friends also got given short shrift after 26 years, right. being one of the most decorated soldiers in the British Army, and they turned his back on, they turned their back on him. And I had to go and seek help elsewhere. So, you know, I got in the Yellow Pages. Yeah. Um, back in the day, kids, we had the Yellow Pages, not the internet. Mate, and, people don't um, realise these days, you know, <laughs> when you had to go to the back of the phone book and like... You know, we, we talk about this. I talk about this a lot. You know, there's everyone can instantly help you, but but there, there is something, and I don't want to digress from the important thing. But there is something that used to be therapeutic about opening the page, yeah. going through it, and, and finding the numbers, and, and then ringing them up. But it's too much choice nowadays. You know, yeah. the yellow pages had a set amount of people. You couldn't ring anybody else, and you couldn't get in it either. You no. know, it's not like now everyone's an expert, are they? Yeah. But but okay, so so you found someone that that. I guess opened all those boxes and let you let it all out, and that that must have been quite, quite. Do you know it was amazing? Uh, I I did this for the best part of a year, every two weeks, and it was really expensive. And I tell you what, it's the best money I've ever spent in my life. And the the lady that helped me, she was in her late fifties, and it was a it was a more holistic approach and. 
she was quite a spiritual person and at the time I was struggling with religion and all, all sorts of different things and she kind of broke it down a different way for me and it, it enabled me to to be okay with myself and that was the biggest issue is that I wasn't happy with who I was and I didn't know how to communicate because for the last eight years I'd been predispositioned to be a professional soldier yeah yeah I get that mate it's powerful like genuinely it's, it's kind of powerful and I think we've got a I think what 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 I'd like to try and do is is just get get you to include something that, that where we can give I don't know, give, give some options or some advice to someone who's in a situation like you are because I think it's powerful and I don't I don't want to go too deep into it but when you're talking about picking fights and looking at yourself in the mirror that's that's just you know that's a very very dark place so Mike listen you know for, for me when you reached out to us and you said look you'd like to come on the show you've got a story to tell um, it's above and beyond your career in construction supplies you spoke openly you spoke candidly you spoke honestly about being in a dark place um, we'll come back to this towards the end of the show but there are going to be people that are listening to this that feel inspired there are going to be people that listen to this and feel really scared because they, they may be going through similar emotions or mm-hmm. in a similar part stage you mentioned there the most important thing was investing in yourself or finding time to get help um, where could someone go or, or what, what advice would you give to someone who's, who's facing this boys, girls or whatever you're yeah, facing this at the moment I am um, from personal experience I've got uh a very close family member that's going through um, severe depression at the moment and Think Action have been unbelievable absolutely unbelievable um, within the hour they've notified a doctor the the, local, the family doctor to tell them what was happening um, they'd arranged appointments they've got CBT cognitive behavioural therapy lined up yeah. either over the phone one to one Skype it's you know, you've got mind. We've we've got a mind office just down the road. You know, it's again, it's another charity. You've got calm. Um, there are charities out there, but m- more importantly, I think if there's somebody listening to this now that needs to take that initial step and is thinking about suicide or is thinking that the world might be a better place without them, it's not mm. because whether we like it or not, we're all wonderfully diverse people that bring something different and we're all genetically pre-programmed to offer help do not be afraid to ask for help the only stupid question is the one you don't ask you've got to put your hand out and say i need help i'm struggling yeah never be afraid to tell somebody how you're feeling never be afraid to answer somebody who says i feel like crap Mm. i need help i'm struggling i'm drowning and just look out for indicators Mm. You know, one of the biggest things for me is that I've always been a larger-than-life character. I've been someone that's a life and soul of the party. And even now, today, I still struggle with depression sometimes. Mm. It's kind of like being an alcoholic. Yeah, You're always going to have it it's now. There, yeah. But it's about watching for those triggers so that you can manage it and deal with it. And my friends will say, geez, you, I, I never know you suffer with that. Well, yeah, I do. Yeah. You know, well, blimey. Now they're more open with me. Now they'll ask mm. me. And more importantly, they'll come and they'll share with me when they're at their lowest moments. Yeah. And that's going to make things better for everyone. So, so I guess, I mean, thank you so much for sharing that so so, so, so honestly and, and so so openly with, with us and the listeners. And we will support this. We will, uh, I mean, links to calm are all over my profile anyway because of yeah. what we've done. But yeah. we'll make sure we, talk, we, we link up Think Action, we'll link up Mind. 
and you know people can can reach out to me they can reach out to you and we can put people in the right direction and then just try and do a little something to, to help anyone that's facing those challenges that you faced back then but that was an excellent excellent segment of the show mate that thanks was, for having that, me that, no it's absolute quality Okay, Mr. Wagstaff, you've been an amazing guest because you've brought to the Foyne Jones, Foyne Jones Show for the very first time, you know, a personal journey which has involved a very dark place and it's ended up in a very positive place in your career. What you've also done for the very first time is you've managed to bring a Chelsea fan yep. into the studio. So we are going to move on to the penalty shootout quiz, which is five questions about your football team and your, and your club, which is going to be Chelsea. So... As you know, mate, and most people will know this, I grew up on the Fulham Road, and I actually grew up a 10-minute walk from Stamford Bridge. So on a good Saturday afternoon, you could hear out my back back window the shed singing carefree, but my granddad was a huge Fulham fan and a huge fan of Johnny Haynes, and despite me watching both as a kid, I was always a Fulham fan. That's my excuse. Yeah. Why are you a Chelsea fan? That's question one, mate. <laughs> Do you know, I've got my um, I've got my best mate, Ron, a lot to thank for this one. Um, Thanks, Ron. <laughs> He's um, he's a he's a civvy guy that I met the year before I got out of the army. Um, he's been a constant support for me, but he he took me to Chelsea '99, um, I think it was um, the first time I'd ever been to a Premiership ground, and they had Budweiser on draft. It was just it was a brilliant place to be. You know, we played attacking, interesting football. Um, yeah, so I've got him to blame, and he's, he's a Man United fan, <laughs> a typical Man United fan, because he lives in Kent. Oh, all day long, yeah, all down anyway, isn't he? So, 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 due to someone taking to your first game, you fell in love with the club, first Premiership ground. Um, who's your favourite Chelsea player? Frank Lampard. Frankie Lampard. It's, it's not even in doubt. Yeah, it's actually. I, went, I remember going to an event, um, and uh, Steve Claridge was was guests talking and people were firing questions at him about you know the best player he's seen played with and all the big names are coming up you know from Gaza to, to others and he just said for him that the, the, the most modern and uh, most amazing professional was Frank Lampard yeah um, and a lot of Chelsea fans would say that so if you've got a favourite so, so it's a question we know now we now know why you're a Chelsea fan your favourite player is Frankie Lampard what would you say has been the best goal you've seen as a Chelsea fan Probably what the best Chelsea goal? Best goal doesn't mean best, best goal you've seen involving oh, there Chelsea. So many. All right, so don't many. like it. Not that many. Do you know what? The... I bet you don't say Louis Barmore's winner against them in 2005 for Fulham. No. Do you know no. what? I think you could go for Makaleli's penalty in 2004, 2005. You could go with Michael Essien's volley against Barca in the Champions mm. League. That was unreal. Um, Anything that Didier Drogba ever scored against Arsenal. Um, Ashley Cole on the last day of the season um, under Carlo Ancelotti. Um, Frank Lampard's goal against Bolton to secure Premier League. Um, you know, even to Batshuayi, you know, his his five-minute wonder streak for us. You know, mm. it's... I've been so lucky to see so many good goals. Uh, my my favourite, for what it's worth, my favourite Chelsea goal is Franco Zola's little flick, uh, little back heel flick, and that player would would probably go down to me as 
the only time I remember sitting with my father-in-law, who's probably same as my granddad, used to watch Fulham and Chelsea, Fulham and Chelsea, he's from Fulham. But because of Jimmy Greaves, he was a yeah. Chelsea fan rather than Johnny Hayes making him a Fulham fan. And I took him to that game. And, um, and not, not that game, a different game. It was a Chelsea-Fulham match. First time we, we got back up to Premier League. So I grew up in Fulham and we were never playing Chelsea for years and years. But it was the first time we played them when Tagana got us up. And I remember to a man, the Zola got subbed. You know, in halfway through the second half, and two way man, the every single way fan got up and clapped him off the pitch at the same yeah. time as Chelsea did. He kind of just had that thing. So I think for he's he, what he did on the pitch was amazing. But let's 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 kind of look at the, the team right now. Um, strong chance because there's a game tonight. Strong chance of making the the final Azerbaijan of yeah. all places. Um, are you, do, do you think you're gonna you're gonna nick that? Do you think for question point? Do you think you're gonna win that? You won't believe. It's a difficult one. I'd like to think we've got enough in the locker, but as we've found in recent seasons, chances are it's going to be Arsenal that we're going to come up against in the final. Yeah, that's, that's why the Azerbaijan angle on it just cracks me up. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, why don't you just play it in Wembley? Yeah. Um, it honestly depends on who's fit at the time. You know, we've got a couple of key injuries at the moment, which is sad to see. You know, Hudson Odoi being one of them. What a player um, he is, though. Oh, ridiculous. ridiculous. What a player he is. But, torn muscle, mm. you know, is. Sarri right with his instructions that maybe we we can't play him too much at this yeah. early stage. I mean, he, he's just. I mean, he looks he looks amazing in England shirt. He, he's just one of those players who naturally seems yeah. to be able to make things happen. And he's been a bit a bit of like a shining light in a you know in a season. I mean, I've watched him play Fulham twice, and you know, Hazard just seems on a different planet. His goal against but, West Ham last week was unbelievable. But the, but the team does not quite seem a team. At the moment, so so I'm not sure where, what that will mean, but I think you've got a strong chance of the Europa League. But if we go through the questions, so you know you're a Chelsea fan by default because your mate took you there. Uh, there's the favourite player is Frank Lampard. There's too many goals to pin it on. You're Do you not know sure. I've got, I have got go a favourite goal on. now. Didier Drogba's last minute header against Bayern Munich Champions League final. Not a bad goal, mate. If you're going to pick one. I mean that corner from one matter was ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a game, wasn't it? Do you know what I mean? I mean, my my, my favourite Chelsea moment would probably be John Terry's miss in Moscow, but that's uh, that's for completely that's for completely different reasons. Mate, listen, I've only seen you beat. I've only seen us beat Chelsea once in my lifetime. Um, I've never seen us win at Stamford Bridge. Every year I go, I won't be going next year, but every year I turn up, I'm like, yeah, it'll be this time, boys. I yeah. did say this to you early on in the yeah. season. Every <laughs> <laughs> this time, no, we've gone down, you know. But but do you know what? I think. Um, you know, it's the hope that does you up in football, and, and it's great to hear it. But I want to ask you just a question about football management because you got you got the guy at the moment now. You know, there's part of him that really endears himself to me. I think yeah. he's quite eccentric. But hand on heart, do you believe he'll be in that dugout come the beginning of the next season in August? Yes, you do. I do. Is that embargo led because you just can't sign any players and there's no no one would want to come in, or do you think the club will stick with him? Um, I think the club are going to stick with him yeah. purely because he's he, he's got that. I genuinely think that Frank Lampard's been lined up for this role permanently and I think he just needs a little bit more time. Yeah. There's something point that says it'll be great to see some of those players coming into and staying into the game rather than going into punditry, which, yeah. which must be so easy. And Some of them are TV goal, but you want to see them, I think, out on the... Out on the pitch because look at what Southgate's doing for the national team. So you're going to stick with Sarri. You're going to win the Europa League. Lampard's your favourite player. Drop is your favourite goal, and you're a Chelsea fan because of your mate Rob. Is that right? Yeah. That's the end of the shootout, mate. Thank you very much. Yeah.
Mike, we're coming to the end of the of the podcast, and it's been a brilliant episode to record the Fuller Jones show. We we could talk for ages because I think the taking away the the full of Chelsea football, which is always a little bit there, and I can't help throw a little. I don't know why I do it because they've always been a bigger club. They've always been a better club, and. Growing up where I did, I don't even dislike Chelsea because we never played them as a no. kid. So, so I, I have um, probably rivalries with, with other teams in West London. But the the message you, you spoke about in terms of that transition to civil, civilian life, uh, I think to close the show off, we, we can really go back to that because you said something quite 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 unique there, um, where where you were just talking about you know. What really is mental health? What really is mental wellness? So, so let's just go back to that to kind of end the show and, and leave you to, to sort of close the show off for us. So I think that we've got a duty of care in the construction industry to really, to really look at the people we work alongside. You know, what is mental health? It's, the media's rife with it at the moment. It's okay to not be okay. But still, as blokes, we struggle to put our hand out and say I need help and I think that's where we as managers have got a duty of care to the people that we work beside because you need to be looking for these symptoms you know somebody that's late for work that's never late for work just see if they're okay you know a friend that hasn't responded to a text for ages see if they're okay you know somebody who's normally quite a an affectionate family member or friend suddenly isn't see if they're okay you know, ask people how they're feeling. Because if you don't ask someone how they're feeling, you're never going to get to the bottom of it. You know, it's we can always say, all right, all right, Pete, how are you? You know, that elicits one response. But if I say to you, how are you feeling? We've got to get deep on that. Yeah. Because you can't, you can't lie about it, you can't shield it. And at some point, your response is going to dictate and, and do you know something what, from well, me. You, you... Something that's just come to me there is it's about being in the sales arena, all right? Because because I've been that sales person, sales rep, sales director. You know, you have to be the front man. You have to be the life and soul. Mm. And I was talking about it out here a couple of a couple of days last week, where you know there are sometimes, and you know I'm okay, but there are sometimes I come in and you have to lift the room, and I'm like. I don't want to lift the room. I actually yeah. just want to sit in that corner, put my hood on, and just do some work. Yeah. And and that's that difference, I think, between that superficial, are you okay? And someone just says yes, and then actually taking that time to go looking for a little bit deeper. Um, it doesn't matter how often we see it and how much is put up there. You know, Bob Hoskins t- t- coined it well in the old BT ads, it's good, yeah, to, talk. good to talk. It is really good to talk, but it's actually meaning it, and it's actually being being able to, to feel you can talk, and that come out of my fundraising. Um, Mike, I mean, from a, from a guest perspective... Um, You've brought something really different to the show. You've actually approached us because you wanted to talk about your own humbling experiences, where you are now. We've linked it up with a little, little bit of football, but we will make sure that we share those links to the charity. And if you're comfortable, if anyone reaches out to me and they want to turn to you for advice, or yeah, you're okay for us to share some details with them, yeah, not yeah. a problem at all. If you know, if you know, you look at the construction industry as a whole, you are you are six times more likely to commit suicide in the construction industry than you are to fall from a height. You know, if Is that uh, true? Yeah, it's true. You know, if well. if somebody off of the back of this can pick up the phone to me, to you, to a, one of the charities we've mentioned and avoid that, then you know, we've done our job. We'll make that as easy as we possibly can because Callum in his editing, he'll make sure we put the links in there. I'm well connected at Calm anyway, but the others will will put the stuff in there because I have no doubt that there'll be someone listening to this or watching watching them when we promote it that thinks, do you know what? 
I'm in a pretty rubbish place at the moment and I could do with just talking to someone. We all need it. You know, we all have highs and lows and it's been a fantastic episode, mate. Thank you so Thank much you for coming in. Cheers, been mate. Good. Much appreciated. So that's the end of the show. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Foyne Jones by visiting our website or connecting with me on LinkedIn. We are Foyne Jones. This is what we do.